Last night, uh, Dave told you uh, how in preparation for yesterday's uh, Bible teaching, I couldn't think of the word I was looking for and ended up Googling, uh, what's the word for when you can't remember? Now, afterwards, one or two of you kindly came to me because Dave didn't say what the word was. And you kindly came to me and said, what was that word? I think you were just being kind and comforting. Uh, But if you were being serious, the word's amnesia. And uh, we forget, we forget the goodness of God. We forget the wonder of who God is. So fellow sufferers, Mindful that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, let's do a little story so far. On Monday in the Bible readings, we looked at John 16 and were brought face to face with Jesus' teaching and expectation that the Holy Spirit would rest on all who follow him and that they would need the Holy Spirit as they moved out in his name into all the world. We saw that Jesus was teaching that the Spirit would be at work in the life of the individual and that the Spirit would be ahead of them out in the world. Yesterday, we focused on Romans 8 and on that work of individual transformation that the Spirit does in human lives like ours. Today, we're going to pick up that second aspect of the work of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus said to those disciples in John 16, when he, that's the Spirit, comes, he'll prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people uh, do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit already at work ahead of them, out in the world. So come with me into Acts chapter 26, and we're going to read verses 8 to 19. Paul's in an audience with King Herod Agrippa, uh, King Herod's sister Bernice, and Festus, who was the Roman procurator. Acts 26, and we'll start at verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those occasions, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. What a context for Paul to find himself in. He's standing before Festus, who represents the power and the authority of the Roman Empire, and before King, him, King Herod Agrippa II. Now just listen to Herod Agrippa's family tree. King Herod the Great had tried to kill Jesus. His son Antipas, Tetrarch of Galilee, had had John the Baptist put to death. His son, Agrippa I, had had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. And now, Paul standing before his son, King Agrippa II. And Paul, Paul in that context, when he could have been fighting for his life, gives his testimony. He tells the story of how Jesus met with him. And we're told clearly, it's therefore as if you read on in Acts 26, that Paul's hope and expectation for that formal conversation was what? Well, what would you have wanted if you were Paul? To get off the hook? To be allowed to go free? Paul's primary hope as he stands before Festus, Roman, as he stands before King Herod the Agrippa, representative of a family dynasty who had done all that they could at every point to stand against what God is doing. What's Paul's expectation and hope? That they would come to know Jesus. That's why he's there. Listen uh, to um, verses 28 and 29. Yes, then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today can become what I am, except for these chains. So many years before, at the time of Saul's conversion, the Lord had spoken to Ananias about the then blind persecutor Saul. And God had said to Ananias, it's in Acts 9.15, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And now, so many years later, Paul, as he says himself, had not been disobedient to the vision from heaven and he's standing before Gentiles and kings pressing home the claims of Jesus in that particular courtroom and Paul what's his attitude he doesn't discount them he doesn't somehow think this Roman These people, Herod and Bernice, representatives of this family, that they are somehow outside the scope of God's grace. His longing, his longing even for them, is that they would come to know Jesus. For God so loved me, 
people like me, people who think like me, my tribe, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If the Spirit this morning and through this week, as you've listened in the mornings and in the evenings, if the Spirit is stirring in your heart a longing to live your life in the power of His Spirit, if the Spirit's prompting you because you know that you're a bit on half power and you're up for journeying with Jesus, you're up for being filled by the Spirit, expect, expect that the Holy Spirit will be at work in your life and expect, expect to find yourself out in the world often with people whom you don't expect to find yourself, often on the edges with unexpected people and in unexpected places. That's the evidence of Scripture. The longest single narrative in Acts runs to 66 verses. Uh, Dave referred to it last night. By allocating that amount of space to one story, Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, obviously believes that this is an important story to tell. Uh, let's read Acts chapter 10 and pick it up. Acts chapter 10 and verses 1 to 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of the Lord who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and he sent them to Joppa. At Caesarea, there was a man called Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He distinctly saw, not detail great, he distinctly saw, there's no need, no room for doubt or question here or mistakes. He distinctly saw an angel from the Lord who came to him and said, Cornelius. And the angel tells Cornelius to send men to Joppa and to get Peter. And Cornelius obeys. And the next day, God speaks to Peter in a vision. I love the detail of this too. Um, Peter uh, is praying on the roof uh, at about lunchtime and Peter becomes hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, 
And I don't know where the cooperation is between human spirit and the spirit of God in this. I know that sometimes if I'm praying and I get hungry, my mind goes to food. And uh, maybe Peter's did as well. He falls into a trance, but it's not the food he expects. And the spirit of God says to Peter, well, watch what happens. Peter saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And a voice told him, get up, Peter, and eat. Surely not, Lord, says Peter, because Peter knows what's clean and Peter knows what's unclean. And in the conversation which goes on, Peter, Peter has to have his boundaries stretched as the Spirit of God leads him to see just something of the extent of God's grace and that God's grace extends to Gentiles like Cornelius too. And Peter goes, and while he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Paul in Jerusalem before Festus and King Agrippa Peter, brought by the Spirit to Caesarea, which in itself was a place of tension between Jews and Gentiles, and finds himself, to his surprise, preaching to Gentiles and the Holy Spirit falling on all. Lydia in Philippi, bearing witness as she works by a riverside and opens her home. Philip, who goes to the desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza and meets an Ethiopian eunuch. The evidence of Scripture is crystal clear. When God's people commit themselves to mission in the power of God's Spirit, they find themselves not behind locked doors, but in the world. Kenneth Greet was a wonderful Methodist preacher, and he wrote this The Spirit moves. The Spirit moves. This is the key to all that follows. Always the presence and power of the Holy Spirit are signified by movement. On the day of Pentecost, that wonderful, long-promised day, the disciples do not stay where they are all together in one place. Peter goes out and addresses the crowd, some of whom were curious, some of whom were bewildered, others who were amazed, and others of whom were actively making fun of the disciples that day. They could, they could conceivably have stayed where they were. Read the account of Acts chapter 2, and you'll see that as the disciples gather in one place, and when the sound comes like a rushing wind, and tongues of fire come and rest upon them, and they begin to speak in tongues, as that happens, the crowd outside the door hear what's happening, and some of them are curious. The disciples that day could have stayed behind locked doors and waited for that curious crowd to come to them, but they don't. They could have stayed in that locked room, enjoyed the Holy Spirit's presence, worshipped and prayed, and then gone home with silent lips through unchanged, unchanged streets 
talking about what a wonderful meeting they'd had that night. But they don't do that. They're propelled by the Spirit into the world. If as the Holy Spirit leads us into truth, we commit ourselves to mission in the power of the Spirit, we'll find the Spirit not just transforming our lives, but leading us into the world. I don't know where your mind goes to when you think of your happy place. For me, if someone says, where's your happy place? My mind doesn't go in its imagination to a Caribbean beach. It definitely doesn't go to a rugby match. <clears throat> doesn't go to a dance floor with flags. My mind, my mind goes to my home and to our kitchen table. My happy place is to have my family gathered round our kitchen table with cups of tea. But here's the thing about that picture. In that picture, the door of my home, well, it's firmly closed. And the phone never rings to disturb us. We don't have technology at the table. We're gathered round that table happy and in each other's company and gloriously undisturbed. It frightens me, brothers and sisters, that church can so often be exactly like that. We're gathered together, enjoying each other's company, gloriously undisturbed. Gloriously undisturbed by the fact that the world outside our doors needs to know Jesus, groans waiting for transformation. Church, church is not an ark. Make it in and you'll be safe, carried above the misery of the world to safety. Church is a place of gathering, is a place of worship and teaching, and is a place of sending. Commit yourself to mission in the power of God's Spirit, and you'll find yourself sent. I love these words from George MacLeod. Listen to what his comment is on that sort of Christian life. He writes this, it's only those who commit themselves to live out the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, who will ever know the absolute need to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because they may not know where their next meal is coming from. It is only people who commit themselves to live out the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, who will ever really need to pray, forgive us our trespasses, because they're certain to make such massive mistakes as they go out into the world and take risks. Commit yourself to mission in the power of the Spirit and you'll find yourself in the world, on the edges, in the margins. That should be the place where Christians normally are. We've seen experiential evidence of that in Acts. I want us now to look at a theological basis for that in terms of the work of the Spirit. And we're going to highlight two strands. The Holy Spirit's involvement in creation which gives us a clue to the extended scope of God's mission. 
And then we're just going to mention John 16 again and what Jesus teaches about the nature and work of the Holy Spirit in the world. But let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The line I've written next is, there's some controversy about Genesis chapter 1. Well, boys and dear, is that ever an understatement? There is some controversy about Genesis chapter 1. But the bit of the issue that I want us to focus in on is the role of the Holy Spirit in creation. Does the writer of Genesis 1, when he talks about the Spirit hovering over the waters, mean the Holy Spirit? That's, what was, that's the understanding that was picked up in the NIV, which I read to you, which says, A darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Or does the writer mean a wind? which blows over a general gloomy chaos. So, for example, the New English Bible translates those verses as the earth was out without form and void, with darkness over the face of the abyss, and a mighty wind which swept over the face of the water. Seems to me, and we can talk about it tomorrow in the Q&A if you want to, but it seems to me that the balance of the argument is clearly in favor of Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, referring to the Spirit of God right at the beginning of the creation narrative. Because apart from this reference, there are other references throughout the Old Testament to the work of the Spirit in creation. In Psalm 104, which is a hymn of praise to the Lord, the psalmist shouts in verses 27 to 30, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you send your spirit, they're created, and you renew the face of the ground. Psalm 36 reads, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starring, starry host by the breath, the ruach of his mouth. The Spirit of God who hovers over the water. It's a beautiful picture. Intimately, closely involved in the stuff of creation. The yet to be created and being created earth. The earth not as a zone somehow alien to God but a place in which God by his Spirit is involved, both on the huge scale, the one who creates out of nothing, and close at hand, intimate. And that creative work of God that we see signaled right at the beginning of Genesis is not a one-off act of creation, but ongoing, keeps going. The work of the Creator God through the power of His Spirit keeps going. Jesus Himself points to that truth in a conversation that's recorded for us in John chapter 5. Jesus sees the man who has lain by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And Jesus, when He sees him, has a conversation with him and says, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
And at once, the man, <coughs> excuse me, at once the man was cured, he picks up his mat and he walks. However, these events take place on the Sabbath. And when some religious leaders see the man who was uh, once lying by the pool up carrying his mat on the Sabbath day, they tell the man off. And the once uh, unable to move man courageously says to these religious leaders who are accusing him, well, basically, he points to Jesus and says, it's not my fault. He made me do it. Uh, The words that are there, Oz, the man says to him, he replied, verse 11 of John 5, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And the man didn't realize that the person who'd healed him initially was Jesus. When he does realize, he goes back to the religious leaders and they, began, uh, they begin to question. And we're going to pick up uh, the incident in John 5 and at verse 16. So when Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. See what Jesus says? Jesus uh, defends himself, makes his case by relating his activity on the Sabbath to the unceasing creating work of God. God's work of creation didn't finish on the sixth day or the seventh day. It continues. My father is always at work to this very day. God, in the power of his spirit, is creator and creating. So when we think about creation, we need to think about God's ongoing universal creative activity. Creation, not just an instant or a week or a time of initiation, but ongoing. God, in the power of his spirit, still involved in the big picture and in the warp and the weft of creation in creating and sustaining life. Now, here's the thing. If we can allow the Spirit of God to stretch our minds, to begin to glimpse the wonder of the breadth of God's creative activity, then the boundaries which we so easily put on the gospel or on mission begin to be stretched as well because nothing and no one is outside the sphere of God's influence. Our theology of uh, mission has written one person, will be all wrong unless we start with a song of praise about this surging diversity of creative and redemptive initiative. In the power of his spirit, God has been, God is, and God will be at work in the world. Genesis 1, John 5. We're back in Romans 8. Here's a bit of behind-the-scenes news. When Dave and Jago and I were uh, corresponding about uh, what we'd be teaching this week in the mornings and the evenings, 
all of us wanted to teach Romans 8. Uh, it is a testimony uh, to Dave and to Jago's grace that I'm the one that gets to do it. We all wanted to teach it because there's so much in Romans 8 about the work of the Spirit and life in the Spirit. And although we taught it and looked at it yesterday, we're back, here, back in it again today because we need to think and revisit the work of the Spirit in the renewal of creation. Come with me again. It's probably creased in your Bible at this stage. Picking up Romans 8 at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed uh, in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God." We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So exciting. Because yet again, the barrier-breaking, initiative-taking Spirit of God has burst through our neat and tidy barriers and is at work right across the face of the earth, everywhere, exclaims an Anglican report on the Spirit, everywhere and at all times, the Spirit has been at work. The scope of the gospel is broad, impacts and continues to impact the whole of creation and every part of the created order. Now, if that is true, I want us to look for the remainder of our time at two implications of that, two ways, and there are many others, but two ways in which that truth it might be applied into our lives. The first is in our attitude to creation, and the second is with regard to our attitude to others. Our attitude to creation. Here's the question. Is it a gospel value to care for creation? Are we living the gospel when we reduce, reuse, recycle? Or are we just following the world's agenda? There's a long tradition of thinking that says that we don't need to care for creation. That the earth is simply something that's going to be left behind one day, so we don't really need to care about it now. Uh, the Two times that I remember being told off at the door shaking hands after a sermon. Well, you can ask me later about the second one. Uh, but one of them, one of them was when I preached about the gospel and creation. And the woman who loves the Lord very much said, you missed an opportunity there, Heather, to preach the gospel. Because I talked about the created order. Did I? Maybe she was right. Or is it a gospel value to care about creation? It seems to me that the Genesis narrative makes it clear that it is human beings' responsibility to care for and to steward creation which is good. 
By caring for the earth properly, we enable it to be fruitful and to play its intended role in giving glory to God, writes Bob White in an article for Evangelical Alliance. Our love for others, our love for our neighbor, furthermore demands that we should care about the Pacific Islands disappearing under rising tides, about El Salvador where rising sea levels threaten the fishing age, uh, industry, about the Philippines, where typhoons threaten life and farms. And we're reminded yet again that the whole of creation is the ongoing arena for the Holy Spirit's creative work. Now, if that's true, what's our responsibility as God's people to partner with the Spirit in the arena of creation? Donald English was a British Methodist scholar and preacher, wonderful man of God. I need to read to you quite a long piece, which he wrote nearly 30 years ago. But listen to this. If Christ is the clue to the created world, as John and Paul and the writers to the Hebrews claim, then it must follow that none of the world's great problems will or can be answered without reference to that which his life, teaching, death and resurrection, ascension and second coming reveal. Problems of starvation and ecology, racism and deprivation, war, unemployment, injustice, genetic engineering, and a host of other issues will find no solution until addressed by the truth as it is in Jesus. I don't mean, he says, that a degree in theology is all the training one needs to deal with such complex and perplexing issues. Would it be that some of our speakers would learn that lesson? But I do mean that only in the truth as Jesus has embodied and taught it will solutions be found. Christians who engage themselves in dealing with such issues must not be viewed as handling peripheral issues. They are contending for the truth about Jesus. They are representing the breadth of God's love. To take our doctrine of creation seriously broadens immensely our understanding of God. It also deepens it profoundly. It's time, he says, for us as evangelicals to learn this lesson more extensively. All creation groans, waiting for freedom and glory. The Holy Spirit continues to be at work across creation. Let's not believe the lie that that's a liberal agenda, which somehow dilutes the gospel. The gospel is broad and deep has impacts for the whole of the created order, where there's an increased awareness of the needs of others, where there's a binding together of people in service of a needy world, where responsible choices are being made, where people live selflessly and sacrificially, dying to our selfishness and our consumerism, which costs so much to others. There. There we see the Spirit of God. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit's nudge for you this morning. Christians, 
Christians who commit themselves to mission in the power of the Spirit will find themselves in the world, caught up in the wonder of what the Creator God continues to do in the power of His Spirit. And the second piece of application is this. Christians who commit themselves to mission in the power of the Spirit will find themselves caught up, continually being surprised by the breadth of God's love. The Holy Spirit, says Jesus to those disciples as it's recorded to us in John chapter 16, is that we'll be at work proving the world, at work in the world, persuading them and pointing them to Jesus. And what Jesus talked of there, we see clear evidence often in the Acts where the Holy Spirit went ahead of the apostles, where? To the Ethiopian eunuch who was doing what? Who was already reading the book of Isaiah before, before Philip came near him. The Holy Spirit was ahead of them. Where? With Cornelius the Gentile, who with all his family was devout and God-faring, who gave generously to those in need and who prayed to God regularly. The Spirit of God preparing a way for people to hear the news about Jesus. The Spirit of God at work across the face of the whole earth, ahead of them and ahead of us, still, still inviting us to follow, even when that's really hard, even when we find ourselves struggling And I don't want us to let ourselves off the hook in the light of God's teaching this morning when we're talking about expanding barriers and the barrier-breaking God to think that that means uh, mission and ministry far away. Because the barrier that God might be prompting you to break this morning in the power of His Spirit might be the barrier of being a Christian in your place of work. It might be uh, the difficulty you're facing in being a Christian in your family or being known as a Christian and as a good neighbor with the people who you live physically side by side with. The Spirit of God at work in the world still saying, will you follow me? Andrew Irvine is Chief Operating Officer of East Belfast Mission and Training and Preparation for Ministry in the Methodist Church. He'll be here on Friday uh, doing a seminar on street pastors because he's been one of the people whom God has used to develop street pastors across the whole of Ireland, actually. He has so many challenging and encouraging stories to tell, but listen to this one. On the first night on the streets, um, those of you who know Belfast, he was on the Golden Mile, uh, and uh, they were out uh, getting people to places of safety, uh, chatting to folks who wanted to chat on the streets. And Andrew tells of a conversation where a man uh, who was a wee bit the worse for wear stopped and looked at him and he said, who are you? And Andrew said, well, they were street pastors and that they were drawn from a number of churches. Hear what Dave said last night, such missional potential when we work together as church. 
And Andrew said, uh, we're from a number of churches. And he explained, uh, as the man asked him, why they were there on the streets, that they were there to get people to safety. And if questions came up, they were there uh, because Jesus loves everyone on that street and in the Golden Mile. Andrew said, nobody's outside God's love and God's grace. Do you know what the man said to him in the golden mile in the early hours of that morning? He looked at him and he said, well, if that's true, if that's true that God still so loves the world, what took you so long? What took you so long? Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Let's hold silence. And don't worry if there's a bit of background noise. Decide to focus your mind on God. And allow his spirit to minister to you. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. God, who by his spirit continues to hover over the face of the earth. God, God who loves the world. Would you set our hearts on fire with the wonder of that love? To disciples of old, Jesus says, you must bear witness. Disciples of old find themselves propelled onto the streets. They could have stayed behind locked doors. Would you forgive us? Would you forgive us We repent of staying behind locked doors. And in the grace and power of your spirit, would you enable us to reveal even something of the glory and beauty of Jesus with our neighbors and in our homes and in our work. Amen.